Hi, this is Corey Turner. And along with my wife, Simone, we are the senior pastors of Numa Church. I wanted to thank you for listening to our podcast today. You're about to hear a message from one of our team that we pray builds your faith and empowers you to follow Jesus more closely. Enjoy the message. One of the things I think that's interesting about this passage we're going to read is that it marks a very significant turning point in Jesus' ministry. It's about halfway through his three years of ministry, about 18 months in. So we're still about, I don't know, maybe 12 to 18 months from Jesus going to the cross. And he, he unveils some monumental truths in this passage. And he begins to speak very differently after this time. Um, he begins to speak of things uh, after this time. He, he, this is the first time he says some things, all right? So it's significant. So we'll start reading in uh, verse 13 of Matthew chapter 16. If you want to turn in your Bibles, you can, Matthew 16, or we'll put it up on the screen for you, for those of you who didn't bring your Bible to church. No condemnation. That sounded pretty harsh, didn't it? Sorry about that. All right, Matthew chapter 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, you're blessed, Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock, I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. Whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Then he sternly warned the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem, that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. But Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things heaven forbid lord he said that this will this will never happen to you jesus turned to peter and said get away from me satan you are a dangerous trap to me you are seeing things merely from a human point of view not from god's then Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? For the Son of Man will come with his angels in the glory of his Father and will judge all people according to their deeds. And I tell you the truth, some standing here right now will not die before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. 
I want to talk to you today about um, creating a culture of discipleship. I don't know if this is the best title, but it's the title I came up with, Creating a Culture of Discipleship. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in our lives. We thank you that we were not previously a people, but now we are. We're, we're a community of people. And um, you call us, Lord, above all things, to follow Jesus. I pray that you would open our eyes more to understand what it means to follow you, what it means to be your disciple, what it means to be discipled. Lord, if there's anything that you need to shift or change in our heart, any of our paradigms or any ways that we've seen church previously or what we thought it meant to be a Christian or what we thought it meant to follow you, Lord, we just we invite you to shift and change that. Lord, we look at the world around us and we recognize that sure seems the church has missed the mark in many ways. And Father, there's such a great call upon our lives to influence this city, the university campus that's around us. But Lord, we've got to be discipled. We've got to make disciples. Help us, Lord, to understand, um, Lord, what you mean. In this passage, in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, I've um, I've been a part of quite a few churches throughout the the years of my life. I was counting them up today. I've been in like ten or eleven churches, and that's not counting the crazy eighteen months we were living in Melbourne trying to find a church. I don't know. We probably went to another ten or eleven churches during that time. That was a rough season. But when I look back on the different church experiences that I've had. And it wasn't that I left churches because I got offended or something like that. It was that we were moving on to a new place, uh, a new ministry assignment, some uh, new city that God had called us to. But when I look back on the different churches that I have been a part of, the, the thing that made that church great and, and, and fulfilling and you know, it wasn't the production, it wasn't the quality necessarily of the preaching, it wasn't even the, the, the worship, the music, it was, it, it was, there was something about the culture that lent itself towards spiritual growth. There was what I would call a culture of discipleship. Nothing has been more significant in my own journey of following Jesus than relationships with other Jesus followers. It's not events. It's not, I mean, sure, there's moments and, and encounters with God that are significant and a part of that journey of following Jesus. But there, there, there's this, this sense of responsibility or this environment in the church, this understanding of what it meant to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus, and all the, also this sense of, of making disciples and helping one another to grow. The first church I was a part of, I got saved into the, the lead pastor. His name was Steve. And then the associate pastor, Rick, who became like fathers in my life. I had my own daddy issues, which I've shared with you before. And my parents had recently gotten divorced and I'd immerse myself in a whole lot of myself and a whole lot of things to try to escape from the insecurity in my soul. 
And then God puts these men in my life who begin to um, help me grow. And they're holding me accountable. And they're modeling for me what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. There's unconditional love. There's this freedom to be able to, to confess my sin. Um, they were very transparent and, 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 you know, there was this humility upon them as well. They, there, there, there was just this sense of responsibility and ownership that they had. And it wasn't just the pastors of the church. It, it worked, that worked its way all through that church. Other men in my life, there was a guy named Paul, I think, who, who laid probably the most important spiritual foundations in my life. There's no way I would be in ministry today if it wasn't for his input into my soul, the things that he taught me, the, 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 the confrontation, the admonition, the rebukes, the encouragement that he gave me. There was no way I would have given up, I'm sure, a long time ago. More recently, men like Pastor Raph Solomon in, in Melbourne and, and Pastor Corey, who I think in many ways really stirred up something in me that had previously died. You know, sometimes we go through seasons and God, I, I, you know, we went through this season of 18 months, I said, looking for a church when we had just moved to Melbourne. And it was a season where I learned how desperately I need covenant family. I need other people who are speaking into my life. When um, our pastors met with Lives and I and asked us to pray about moving here to Perth to plant this church, I, of course, began praying through that and thinking about all of my church experiences in the past. And God actually began to speak to me, uh, highlighting those experiences, beginning to form a vision in, in my heart of what what Numa Church here in Perth would look like. And he gave me this very clear phrase. He said, I'm not calling you just to minister to crowds. I'm calling you to make disciples, to train leaders, and to plant churches. And really the planting of churches being the natural overflow of training leaders, which is really the natural overflow of making disciples. This sense that the most important calling upon every Christian's life is discipleship. And what is church? What is the family of God except for a community of people who are disciples, who are followers of Jesus? I mean, if we boil down what church is, it's that. We're disciples. We're followers of Jesus. And so we see these things that Jesus pulls out in the context of discipleship. We, we, we see these these monumental truths. You know, this is the first time this passage we just read, the first time any, anywhere in scripture where Jesus mentions the word church. It's the first time that Jesus actually openly acknowledges and admits to being the Messiah. It's the first time that he prophesies this coming suffering and death on a cross and even his resurrection. Isn't that amazing? He's prophesying that in advance. He, he knew what he had come for and he knew what was going to happen. He knew that death couldn't keep him. And in the context of talking about this revelation of who he is, this context of talking about what church is, he then unfolds and lays out what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus. 
to basically lay down everything for him. If you're going to come after me, if you're going to, if, if you're going to call yourself a Christian, you've got to deny yourself, take up your cross, which, by the way, the cross wasn't a, a religious symbol. The cross was an instrument of death. It was the electric chair. It was the rope, the noose. It was the way that, that the Roman uh, government took the lives of criminals. It was the death penalty. It says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. It's the end of your life. You no longer get to, um, you no longer, longer live a life in pursuit of the things that you were pursuing before. I want a radical change. And what does this come out of? It comes out of this revelation of who Jesus is. I want to go through quickly seven qualities of a healthy discipleship culture. I know you're getting a little bit nervous with the number seven. Seven qualities, but uh, we'll go fairly quickly through these. The first thing that we see here in this passage, a healthy discipleship culture values God encounters. The first time I showed up at a church, the thing that provoked me, I'd had an encounter with Jesus in my bedroom, but there was still something that was, that, that, that was missing. I wasn't a part of a family. I'd had this encounter with Jesus, but there was no real sense of connection with other believers. And then I show up in this, this atmosphere where people are worshiping God, and, and I had this encounter with the presence of God that changed me forever. And many of the things that, that had gripped my life previously fell off of me in this moment of encounter with God, being filled with the Holy Spirit. I've shared with some of you before where I, I remember the moment in, after the service in the back of the room where the pastor, I'm having a chat with him. He's introducing himself to me. And, and, you know, he just says, hey, can I pray for you? And he starts to pray for me, lays his hands upon me. My heart's racing. The Holy Spirit comes upon me. I begin speaking in tongues. I had this encounter with God that marked me and changed me forever. And all the sin that I had, I, I had felt bad about committing that week after the previous week, making a commitment to Jesus, all of a sudden just begins to fall off of me. It was like I had this revelation of who Jesus is and what it meant to serve him. And I, it, it, was, it just began falling off. It was like, I don't need this in my life anymore because I'm following Jesus. It was this sense that I'm serving him for the rest of my life. He is all that I need. This other thing doesn't have to be a part of my life anymore. And we can see Jesus in this passage trying to bring his disciples to this revelation of who he, who he is. He's saying, first, who do people say that I am? Often God begins to reveal himself to us first in this way. Who, who, do, who do other people say that I am? Who, who does your mom say? Who does your grandmother say? Who, who does whoever you're, for, for me, it was my friend who sat next to me in accounting class. What is Randy? That was his name, Randy. What does Randy have to say about who Jesus is? But then finally, he's bringing me to this point of, of asking me that question. Yeah, but Jason, who do you say? that I am. And throughout scripture, we can see that 
discipleship, being a disciple, a follower of Jesus begins with a God encounter. When Jesus called Peter, it was after a God encounter. It was this encounter with the power of Jesus where he's fishing all night. And Jesus says to him, he didn't catch anything. Jesus says, go again, throw out your nets. He goes out, he throws out his nets and brings in more fish than he can bring in. He's got to call in other boats. He had this, this power encounter with Jesus. Nathaniel, who became a follower of Jesus. How did he end up following Jesus? And how did he know who Jesus was? Well, what was the God encounter he had? He, 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 he didn't even believe. He was uh, Philip's skeptic friend. And Jesus meets Nathaniel and basically has a word of knowledge and says, I saw you under the fig tree. And I don't know what happened under the fig tree, but I can guess that he was probably under a fig tree somewhere crying out to God to reveal himself to him or, or, or something in his life. And here is Jesus with his word of knowledge and this evidence, this God encounter. Discipleship begins through super, supernatural encounter with Jesus. I mean, this is the ultimate goal of encountering Jesus in worship. As we give him worship and praise, what he, what he wants, what he desires is that we would be disciples whose lives are laid down. We talk a lot at NUMA about planting churches that carry a spirit of revival. It's amazing to hear what God is doing in, in Melbourne and, and just how he's pouring out his spirit at our church there. And man, I, and I'm, I'm hungry for greater manifestations of God's presence here in Perth. I'm hungry for revival to come to, to this city, to our church. But what do we mean when we say that? We want, we want when we gather together, and we want people to just encounter God. And when we walked into this, when we had this revival conference in Melbourne, there was just something about what God was doing there and just being in his presence that just changed me. I couldn't not be on my face, just in his, just worshiping him. That sense of his glory, that, that feeling that I couldn't get low enough, just wanting to posture myself before him in humility. Discipleship begins with a God encounter that leads us into this passionate, personal relationship with Jesus, where we love him. He's our first love. We love him more than anything else. A healthy discipleship culture, second values humility. To be a disciple of Jesus is to be a learner. When Jesus said to follow him, he said, come after me and learn. To be a disciple is to take the posture of being a student. A student knows that they have something to learn. A proud person, an unteachable person can never grow in their relationship with Jesus. I was reading this passage this week, and this struck me. It says, we ask you, brothers, this is Paul to the Thessalonian church, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. 
and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. It's interesting, this passage, because we live in a culture that's very egalitarian, and this kind of is very striking, that this idea that there are people who are over us in the Lord. Can we just think about that for a moment? That when God looks at us and sees our lives, he puts other people around us that will help us to grow closer to him. There's something about humility and having a teachable heart. He's saying here to respect those that God puts into our lives who want to help us to grow spiritually. Leadership guru John Maxwell says that growth is only possible when we are willing to adopt a teachable spirit. The only way to grow is when we have a teachable spirit. We all know this intuitively through our work, right? We know that when we show up at work, we've got to have a teachable spirit. When you start a new job, if we've been in a management position, you've hired someone, you know that, man, how frustrating it is when someone shows up and they act like they know it all. They don't have anything to learn. And there's a spiritual parallel for us. I had a business for seven years mentoring property investors, and there was a very distinct difference between those who had a teachable spirit and those who thought they already knew everything. Now, what was interesting is as most of these people paid a very large sum of money to uh, me and someone else to mentor them, and that itself takes some humility. That, it ta- that itself takes a teachable spirit to count the cost and say, I have something to learn from you. And what was amazing was there were other people that I was mentoring who actually had accomplished more than I had in the realm of business and finance. And yet they had this heart and this posture of coming to learn from me. And they did learn from me. And they were able to grow through that year simply through their posture of humility and accountability. There's something so powerful in our lives about just recognizing that there are other people around me from whom I have something to learn. And we always get tested in this area, in in the more challenging areas of our lives, like in our marriage, like when somebody speaks into our, in our, in, in our lives, into our marriage. You know, one of the hardest things to do when you're going through a challenge or difficulty in your marriage is to come and sit down with someone else and just lay it all out there and be real. This is what's going on. Can you help us? We're struggling in this area. Can you help me? I need help. Man, you want to know what's harder? There's only one thing that's harder than marriage. And that's parenting. <laughs> when, when to open up our lives and say, hey, I mean, imagine this as a parent, going to another parent. Hey, I see your kids, and I want my kids to be more like your kids. Can you disciple me? Can you show me what you've done with your children 
so that they act like that. Can, can you disciple me? Can you help me? Can you teach me? Now, that's a, talking about some humility. That's a challenging thing to do because there is nothing more dear to our hearts than what we, and, and nothing more, sometimes even to ourselves, painfully obvious than what we've imparted to our children of ourselves, right? They're the reflection more than anything else of who we are. And they get our good qualities and they get our not so good qualities, right? We, you know, it's like sometimes our, you know, our most painful character flaws are amplified in our children. And uh, man, does it take some humility to get some help in this area. Number three, a healthy discipleship culture requires patient correction. Now, this ties in really with the whole idea of humility because our humility really gets tested in these discipleship relationships we have with people where there's some correction. There's some feedback. And the Bible word for this is admonition or admonish. And we see it twice in this passage. Um, And this is the passage we just read, but I'll give you the, the next verse as well. I'll read it again. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Do you know that there's a uh, there's many commands in Scripture, many challenges in Scripture, and even in the New, the New Testament, especially in the New Testament, to admonish one another. You know what to admonish means to to communicate God's truth to a person in a practical way that applies to something specific in their life while pointing out that that specific thing doesn't match what God's word says. Okay, did you catch that? To admonish is to communicate God's word into someone's life while pointing out that which in their life does not align with God's word. And so it's very personal, uh, very um, gracious and loving and patient feedback, correction. None of us will ever leave the house in the morning, well, hopefully none of us, without first looking in the mirror. All right, very important thing to do. Would everyone agree with that? It's amazing because the most prominent part of our makeup, our our body, that which everyone looks at when they talk to us is the one part that we can't see without some help. And God gives us, through discipleship relationships, mirrors. Because often our most glaring weaknesses, character flaws, the the most glaring things that are holding us back in our pursuit of God, in our relationship with Jesus, are very obvious to other people. And how much do you have to hate someone when you're sitting across from them in lunch at lunch to not show them that big spinach stuck in their tooth right here, right? What kind of friend lets them get up from the table and then just laughs at them when they leave? Go back to the office and, you know, smiling, laughing, having a great time, and then go to the bathroom and you're like, 
what the, when did that get there? And how long has that been there? And the embarrassment. I've had many corrections in my life with these mirrors. Some of them were corrections that were just obvious. And there were some that where they, nothing even needed to be said. I remember the first real moment of admonition for me that I felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit through someone else discipling me was the first time I ever caught up with the associate pastor of the church. And then this other guy that was my age, that was his disciple. I had just come to the church. I was barely a Christian, a week old, week and a half old in the Lord. I hadn't, I mean, I had even gotten high the week before. I was barely saved, just filled with the spirit. And we show up for, to meet him, I show up to meet him for lunch. And this girl walks in who was hardly wearing any clothes, who's very attractive. And I just, the whole conversation went from engaging them to just, whoop. And, and it was just like, I think I even commented like, man, check this girl out. And I didn't realize you don't lust after women, you know, with your Christian brothers. I had no idea. I just thought that was what you do. And because that's what I did, right? And the way that they looked at me, it was, they just looked at me like, really? Like he's, and I, I could hear, I, I didn't even, it was, it was like the Holy Spirit just saying, have you no respect for this woman? It was like, I could, it was my, my heart was pulled back and I could see the lust of my heart. And these guys who were just doing their best to live pure, holy lives. Many times like that, there's been other corrections that were not so silent. I can remember one time I was in ministry. I had, I was a campus minister reaching out to university students. This was in, um, this was at when we lived in Nashville, Middle Tennessee State University in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. I was doing campus ministry there, reaching out to students, a part of this church. And I don't know, I had prayed something in some prayer meeting. And uh, it, was, it was just before Libs and I were, were married. And, and I think there was something revealed in the way that I prayed that was just very arrogant, very proud. And uh, I had a bit of a, 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 we called it a champ talk back in those days, where it was like, champ, let me... Let me, let me help you see something in your life. Champ, there's something I'm seeing here in your life. So champ talk. And uh, he says to me, he says, there is a spirit of pride that me and several other people can see very clearly in your heart. And he said, this isn't just like, you know, like we've all got pride. Like, I've struggled with pride. Like, we all have to overcome pride in our life. He's like, man, there is a spirit of pride upon you. (laughs) And I'm like, ouch. (laughs) Wow. Okay. Spirit of pride. I'm like, can you pray for me and cast it out, please? You know, that took some humility to, because what happens when somebody points something out in our lives, right? And particularly when, now it was it was loving and it was gentle and and it, but it was strong. It was like that was a pretty direct. Man, you are proud. There's a proud. There's a pride in your heart that that is unusual. 
And that, that, that was a difficult moment. I had to make a choice to say, can you help me to overcome this? Help me to see this. And I prayed. I was like, God, help me to see this pride. And he prayed for me, and it was a powerful moment. I learned something. Humility grew in my heart in that moment. And so when we're discipling other people, I think one of the things that we have to be aware of, sometimes it can be a little bit scary. Um, but when we have a culture of humility, when we, where, where there's a culture of discipleship, where we have this relationship with one another, where we recognize that God has put us in one another's lives to help us to grow spiritually. And then when, as we recognize that as we're making disciples, one of the most powerful ways to help people grow is to give feedback. And there's a little bit of risk involved in this. I mean, there's people who have left Numa Perth because Jesus called us here to make disciples, not just to minister to crowds, to make disciples. Making disciples requires loving, patient correction. And there's been some conversations that have been very gentle, very, um, very biblical, very patient, loving. And on the other side of that conversation, there was not a willingness to respond. But you know what? That's okay. Because... Jesus has not called us to, be, to just have an event. He's called us to make disciples. That is, that, is, that is it. That is what there is. What is a church other than a community of disciples? In a healthy culture, fourth, every Christian makes disciples. Every Christian. One of the things that we see over and over again is that Jesus chose to make disciples. This is the way he chose to focus his ministry because he was about to leave and turn it all over to them. I mean, imagine, think about being Jesus coming as the savior of the world, coming to die knowing that you've got about three years, and then you're going to leave and turn it all over to the twelve and the 72, and then there was at most the 120 in the upper room. Now, yeah, the Holy Spirit was going to come, and, he, and it's his grace and his empowerment, but there was, I mean, think about the risk. Think about how important he would have seen his time with these men that he was turning it all over to. And so he told them when he called, called them, he said, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of people. We know at the end of his life, he said, the Great Commission, go and make disciples. I think in many churches, it's the perspective of many Christians that it is the pastor's job to make disciples. Can I just tell you that it is not my job, it is not Olivia's job, Phil's job, Michelle's job, it is not a, the pastor's job to make disciples. 
Pastors make disciples, but the pastor's job, Ephesians chapter 4, is to equip God's people for works of ministry because it's every Christian's responsibility to make disciples. That means we must all be discipled so that we can make disciples. You can't make disciples if you're not first a disciple. And the way that we make disciples will often um, be impacted by how we were discipled. And sometimes we have to be, even as Christians who have walked with Jesus for many years, we may have to have the humility to acknowledge, actually coming here, I don't know that I've ever really been discipled. I've been a part of a discipleship program. I've sat in church meetings. I've heard sermons preached, but I don't know if I've ever been discipled. I don't know in the way that Jesus made disciples if I've had ever had anyone pour into my life like that. And so we might just need to say, hey, can you teach me how to make disciples? Can you show me how to be a disciple maker? I think sometimes we also think that making disciples is a whole lot more intense than it really is. Do you know that when I first became, became a follower of Jesus, my pastors were telling me, um, you need to make disciples. And so I'm looking around, I'm thinking, there's not too many people here that I'm very much farther along in the journey. But I found this high school kid who just started coming around to the church. I thought, all right, I'm a little bit older than him, and I've been saved for longer than him. Not much longer, maybe a couple months, few weeks, but I, okay, I'm going to make a disciple. So I just started catching up with him every week. We would hang out, spend some time together, go grab some lunch. And it was as simple as me asking him, hey, what you been reading in the Bible lately? Hey, anything that God's been speaking to you? Can I share with you what I've been reading, what God's been speaking to me? How, how are your thoughts? How, how are you going to the things that you're thinking about? How's it going following Jesus? Are you finding it diff difficult or, or easy? Are, what's it like at school for you? It's just this relationship of helping someone else follow Jesus. Just providing that little bit of accountability and encouragement. And sometimes admonition. Sometimes a little bit of correction. But most of the time, it's just encouragement. It's being, just asking questions. Accountability. Hey, how can I pray for you? I think one of the myths of discipleship is that I have to be mature, whatever that is, before I can make disciples. I want to challenge you with this thought that you cannot be mature until you start to make disciples. There is a maturity that comes and a, and a growth that begins to come when we begin to take responsibility for the spiritual growth of someone else. When we begin to pour into someone else's life. Man, my, my spiritual growth, my relationship with Jesus, my hunger for God went to new levels after I was asked to lead this life group that met on the university campus. The guy that was leading it before left to pursue a, his music career. And they, they, I was a student, 
you know, this guy's young, zealous. He's a, he's a student there as well. They asked me, they're like, hey, will you lead this? I'm like, I've been a Christian for six months. What are you talking about? That's all right. You can do it. And I would show up and, and but man, talking about a sense of desperation for God, to, man, it gave me this context to, of sense of need that, man, I need to spend time with Jesus. I need, there's, it's not just about me, but there's a, there, there, there are other people who are relying upon me that I'm supposed to lead. How can I do that if I'm not, don't have this pattern of, of spending time with Jesus? I got to have something. And, and even in my fear, it, it just, it, it drove me closer to him, made me want to, to, to be in his word and to pray. And so if you want to grow spiritually, if you want to speed up the spiritual growth, I should say, start a life group. Begin to meet with someone. Begin to speak into someone else's life. Fifth, a healthy discipleship culture values relationship. You might say relationship over programs. Number five, a healthy discipleship culture values relationship. Discipleship always happens best in the context of relationship. Most of the stories in the New Testament are around a table, having a meal. Jesus, when he made disciples, he had these men live very closely with him. This is how Paul made disciples. He said, follow me as I follow Christ. He spent 18 months in Corinth. He spent three years in Ephesus, pouring into people relationally. Now, this is one of the most challenging parts about our culture in the West and in Australia when it comes to creating a culture of discipleship. Because there's something about our culture that makes us live very individualistic, personal, and private lives. We don't hardly, it's, you know, we got to work to get to know our neighbors. We, it doesn't come naturally. We, you know, that, that, then that plays into our, the way that we come to church. You know, the same way we come home and, and pull into the garage and close the garage door so we don't have to talk to the neighbor. And I mean, it's weird. I, I pull up and I'm trying to wave at the neighbor and they turn their back, you know, like just that awkward, that awkwardness of, you know, we're just this individualistic culture. And then we bring that into our understanding of what church is, where we have an event and we show up and we, you know, we sing some songs, hear the word, that's all great. And it's an important part of what we do gathering together as God's people, but there has to be so much more than that. There has to be a culture of discipleship assumes that there's a depth of relationship with one another, where we get close enough to one another, where there's those relationships of accountability and trust. We talk a lot about covenant family around here, where we can show up. One of the things I love about Dolan and, and I think one of the reasons that I've seen he and jo Julie grow so quickly is because of their just, they just laying it all out. This is who I am, confessing all the sin. This is what I'm battling, what I'm struggling with. Help me, help me grow. Help, just help me. I want to be in relationship. And this is why life groups are essential. We've got to be deliberate. We can't it's not enough just we, there's something about being in that small group where discipleship happens, where there's a depth of relational connection 
with other people. And yeah, it's scheduled and yeah, it's not organic and yeah, it's, you know, it's in the calendar, but sometimes we have to be intentional about cultivating deeper relationships. We have the spontaneous catch-ups, we have people around for dinner. We need to go beyond even the life groups and be hospitable, um, catching up with one another. But we have to be intentional about culti- cultivating a depth of relationship. And before we move on from this one, one of the things that's so crucial is we have to understand that the enemy attacks discipleship in our lives by attacking relationship. The people, remember who the enemy is, he's called in Revelation, the accuser of the brothers. He's the accuser. So he comes to attack the most important discipleship relationships in our lives. He comes and does that by speaking words and lies about that person to us to try to turn us against them. He comes and he says things that um, are usually rooted in misunderstanding or something that's not true. And so this is why it is so crucial to fight for these relationships. We got to fight for covenant family. We have to, we, we, and there's some people I so appreciate who in, in this church that people that I have inadvertently offended. All right. I know it's hard to believe. I know it's hard that I have the capacity to inadvertently offend people. But you know what I love? I love when, and even when people push through, and I know those, that feeling of intimidation to go to someone else. And, and I know the intimidation that people can feel sometimes with a pastor. I've felt it with other pastors in my life. But when people have said, come to me and said, when you said this, this is the way that it made me feel. Can you help me understand what you mean by that? What you meant by that? I'm like, thank you so much for coming and talking to me because I know there's other people who've left the church because they were not willing or able within themselves to do that. Thank you for coming to talk to me. And then we're able to have the conversation. We, I explain, here's what I meant. And they explain how it made them feel. I learn, I get better. I become more empathetic if that's even possible. <laughs> My wife's still trying, but I learn, I get better. We all have to do this because in covenant family and relationship, in discipleship relationships, we're going to offend one another because we are still being sanctified. We're still being set free from the flesh. The the flesh sometimes kind of creeps back into the way that we act. That's why being in relationship and around one another is so crucial because, man, when we're when we're living in close proximity to other people, you can't hide. The real you comes out. And that mirror is right there. <laughs> I don't know if that's too much like Jesus, what I'm seeing right there. But we've got to work through. We, we've, the, the root of bitterness is the tool of the enemy to spring up and defile many. We have to be so vigilant. Quickly moving right along, a healthy discipleship culture is intentional. Won't go too much in depth on this one, but when Jesus called his 12 disciples, we get this image, this picture of him going away overnight to pray. It's like he was deeply considering 
He'd been thinking and praying in this last moment of crying out to God, are these really the 12 that you're calling me to, to pour my life into? He went through this principle of, in, uh, of intentionally selecting the people that he was going to pour his life into. And it's amazing when I look at the life of Jesus where he had, there was the 72 that were following him, right? And then there, there, there was the 12. But, you know, even within the 12, there were intentional relationships with Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Man, what would it have been like to get to go into with Jesus to heal Jairus's daughter and be the ones where Jesus is like, all right, you guys stay outside. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, you come with me. It's like, man, why do they, why you, you got favorites, Jesus? What are you doing? Why are you showing favoritism to Peter, Andrew, James, and John? What about Peter, uh, James, and John who get to go to the top of the Mount of Transfiguration and they get to see Moses and Elijah? And man, what a, you know, I mean, Peter's saying dumb stuff and, you know, but why did they get to go? And the other disciples are down at the bottom of the mountain failing at trying to cast a demon out of somebody. So they, then Jesus comes and they feel like they look bad, you know, but Jesus was very intentional. And we have to be very careful, I think. We have to be very purposeful, intentional, and recognize that God calls us to pour our lives into some people more than others, all right? And we should all recognize this. We should all, and I'll tell you, the, the, the greater your capacity increases to make disciples, the more strategic and intentional you have to think. Because remember, what is Jesus thinking? He's thinking, I have got to pour my life into those who are going to be the leaders, those who are going to lead. And so let's be really careful. I, I think sometimes the enemy can, um, can try to even use this whole intentionality of discipleship to try to sow lies that, oh, this person cares more about this person than other people. You know, there's, this person is showing favorites. There's something significant and important about intentional discipleship. The process of selection. One other thing I'll say about this, about being an inten intentional. Do you know that much of the discipleship that I've experienced in my life was because I intentionally went after it. I pursued people. I pushed into their world. You know, Liv's had women in her life that they would call and say, hey, will you disciple me? And Liv's is like, sure, come over. Let's hang out while I make dinner. And they did. And she would, they, they pushed into her life. They got into her realm as a mom of, at one point, six kids under what, eight, nine years old, coming into her world to be discipled by her, pushing into her world. Because when, when it comes to discipleship, who do you want to pour your life into the most? It's those who are hungry, those who are available, those who are teachable. Finally, a healthy discipleship culture 
is empowering. Very early in Jesus' discipleship of his followers, he sends them out to do it themselves. It was both risky for Jesus and for the disciples. And so we have to know and understand that in discipleship, if we're truly being discipled in an empowering environment, we're going to be empowered into environments that are just beyond our comfort zone. And it's very important that we do not, in fear, say, no, I'm not ready to do that, or no, I don't want to do that. Because that place just out of the comfort zone, now we don't want to be too far out of the comfort zone, right? Where we're, you know, because too far out of the comfort zone, there's stress, there's anxiety, but the sweet spot just out of the comfort zone, that's where we grow. That's where something is required of us beyond what we've given before where we have to go to God for a greater grace, a greater strength, an empowerment that we haven't previously been walking in. We need to embrace that discomfort in a culture of empowerment that's just out of the comfort zone. Man, I love how Will's stepped up, you know, with Red Frogs and leading our team over there and just how, just how that, is flourishing. And thank you to many of you who signed up to be a part of that last week. And I believe God, I, man, how awesome that we're going to trace back all that God does in the years to come and the many, many disciples that are made, hundreds of uni students that we reach, going to trace back to Red Frogs and Will right here, just stepping out, just out of the comfort zone into this, this realm of, okay, I'll take responsibility. I don't know what, I, what to do. I don't know what I'm doing, but I'll do it, sure. Thank you for joining us for this message today. We don't assume that every person listening has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so today, we invite you to begin following Jesus as your Lord and Savior. The Bible teaches that every one of us has been created for a relationship with God. Sin has separated us from that relationship, but God loved us so much that He gave us His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived, died, and rose again, conquering sin, Satan, and death itself. If we believe in our hearts that God has raised Jesus from the dead, and we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. So if you are ready to pray in faith, turning away from your sin and believing in Jesus for your salvation, please pray this prayer. Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God, and I ask you to forgive me and cleanse my heart from all of my sin. I receive by faith the free gift of eternal life, and I ask that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit. I thank you that I am born again as a child of God and that you have made me a new creation in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you have prayed that prayer for the first time, we would love to know and help connect you to a local church in your area. You can contact us on our website, numa.church. Thank you for listening.